Sentire Media. Hello everyone. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 72. Frederick II takes the reins and trouble starts. In the last episode, we saw that Frederick of Sicily, son of Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI and Constance of Sicily, had finally been crowned Holy Roman Emperor at the age of 26 in 1220 by a rather reluctant Pope Honorius III. I say rather reluctant because the unification of the crown of the Holy Roman Empire and that of the Kingdom of Sicily, which occupied all of southern Italy as well as the island of Sicily, was something the popes had strived to avoid for years. But, as Lady Macbeth said, what's done is done, and Honorius could only hope things would go for the best. He was particularly obsessed by the idea of a new crusade, to once again free Jerusalem, and he saw Frederick as the right man for the job. He hoped that the new emperor could uphold his solemn vow, uttered at the crypt of Charlemagne, to take up the cross and free the holy city. Frederick reassured him that, of course he would lead the promised crusade, he'd get right on it ASAP, just as soon as he sorted things out a little, New empire to rule and that. Lots of consolidating to do, you know. So, instead of heading for the Holy Land, he headed for Puglia, which in time would come to be perhaps his favourite of all the places and where he would build the very impressive Castel del Monte. He went there to quiet down some of the more unruly vassals and started to set out some laws for the running of the empire he would wisely not set out a single code for all of the areas of his empire, since, for example, Sicily, northern Italy and Germany were very different places, with different administrative needs. Legislation would be another aspect that Frederick II would be remembered for, with tireless work over decades on setting laws and micromanaging many aspects of his holdings, from the relationship with his vassals to how the seamstresses in a certain castle would sow and which lands should not go uncultivated. We'll talk a bit more about this aspect in a bit. Now, he had come to the south to make sure everything was under control, but there was a big issue bubbling up, that of the Muslims. Despite the efforts of the Normans and then Frederick himself, Their situation was worsening under Christian domination, with many Muslims forced to hide their religion and many hiding in the internal mountainous parts of Sicily. Things came to a head in 1224 when a great Muslim uprising occurred on the island. The rebels rallied around a man called Ibn Abad, who actually created a mini-independent state in the area around the impregnable mountain fortress of Mount Yaro, southwest of Palermo. Now, the thing about an impregnable fortress is that it's, well, impregnable. However, 
it's just as hard to get out of a besieged impregnable fortress as it is to get into one. So, with no reinforcements on the way for the rebels, all Frederick had to do was wait, and in time, the fortress fell and the rebellion was put down. The reaction from Frederick and the Christians in Sicily towards the Muslim rebellion of 1224 was what today we could call ethnic cleansing. Very few Muslims now remained alive on the island, and those that did hid out in groups of armed bands high up in the mountains. Having said this, there is an interesting twist to the story. Although it is true that many innocents, including women, children and the elderly, were killed, a large number, around 15,000, a city by medieval standards, were relocated to a town on the mainland, in Puglia, called Lucera, at the tippy-top of the region near modern-day Abruzzo. Lucera was the perfect place. The cathedral had been destroyed and there was no bishop there. Frederick relocated his Muslims to the city and simply let them get on with their daily lives, including their religious practices. This rare example of religious tolerance unfortunately only lasted around 50 years after the death of the emperor, but the traces of Muslim Lucera can be seen to this day. Frederick's tolerance was much appreciated by the Muslims of Lucera, who remained his loyal subjects and would later even fight for him against the invasion by the Pope and against the city-states of northern Italy. The emperor even ended up creating a standing Muslim army so he wouldn't have to rely on his untrustworthy vassals. This was obviously another point against him for the hard-line Christians such as the popes. With the Muslim issue sorted, Frederick now really had to do something about the whole crusade promise, also because there was a new pope in town. Indeed, Honorius III had died on March of 1227, and in his place, Ugolino dei Conti di Segni had been elected. He took the very meaningful name of Gregory IX. Now, you will remember that Gregory was a pretty big name in papal history, starting with Gregory the Great himself, whom you can go and look up on the Pontifax podcast. Gregory VII, then, had been the anti-imperial pope of the whole humiliation of Canossa business. So, when it came to sending the emperor a message using a choice of name by the new pope, choosing Gregory was a very clear sign that the new big man with the big hat meant business. He immediately got onto Frederick's case about the whole not going to the crusade for the last seven odd years and so, and the emperor was now forced to make a move. He got everything ready in the port of Brindisi, and some even say that the fleet left the harbour before coming straight back. Now, one of my sources actually said the expedition was hit with the plague, and that was the reason they came back, with Frederick himself getting sick and barely surviving. Other sources say that the emperor simply claimed he could not leave due to sickness. Whatever the case may have been, Pope Gregory did not dilly-dally 
and excommunicated Frederick without a buy or leave. Accusations flew back and forth in papal bulls and imperial manifests. Cities up and down the Italian peninsula took sides, and here we really see the significant sign of the division between Guelphs and Ghibellines. Listeners will remember that these terms come originally from the division in Germany between the Welf faction of the Dukes of Bavaria in favour of an electoral system of emperorship and the Hohenstaufen who claimed the castle of Wiebeling as their home and were in favour of hereditary imperial rule. In Italy, these terms became Guelfo, which was the pro-papal faction, and Ghibellino, the pro-imperial faction. At this point, Frederick tried to patch things up by actually leaving for the crusade this time, but the European crusading authorities in the Holy Land wanted nothing to do with the excommunicated emperor. So, Frederick used his knowledge of the Muslim culture and the Arabic language to strike up a relationship with the Sultan Al-Kamil. Things got very friendly between the two, and they became the best of mates. The situation got so cushy and lovey-dovey that the two did something unheard of at the time between the Muslims and Christians. These two nutjobs reached a peaceful agreement in 1229. Can you believe it? How dare they? Without spilling a drop of blood, Frederick II obtained not only Jerusalem, but also Jaffa, Bethlehem and Nazareth. The only area of Jerusalem that would remain under Muslim control were the mosques of Al-Aqsa and of the Rock. There was great jubilation among the Christian community in the Holy Land, who could now once again celebrate in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre after over 40 years. Frederick, as an excommunicate, could not participate in said Mass, but he did make sure he went along later to crown himself King of Jerusalem. The question now was, what did Pope Gregory IX think about all this? The Vicar of Christ, Prince of Peace, he who wished humanity to turn the other cheek when struck by one's enemy. Surely he would be overjoyed that the lands of Jesus Christ had been taken back into Christian hands without any bloodshed. Well, no, not in the slightest. That wasn't how things were done. You were supposed to hack the infidels to pieces, not make peace with them. It just wasn't done. The Pope went ballistic. Since Frederick had crowned himself King of Jerusalem, the Pope even went so far as to put an interdict on the city of Jerusalem, meaning that no religious services could be performed in Jerusalem. The Pope now did all he could to encourage the southern vassals of the empire to rebel. When Frederick got back, Seeing the situation could get very sticky very quickly, he decided to ask the Pope for peace. The pontiff refused, but when Frederick then showed up in the Papal States with an army, he quickly changed his mind. But it was very clearly only a temporary and necessary truce for the Pope, 
and he very soon went to do a little more rabble-rousing in the north this time. Meanwhile, Frederick used the momentary respite to do a little more law-making, and in 1231 he convened his third parliament in Melfi, in the modern-day region of Basilicata, the little region squished between the toe, Calabria, and the heel, Puglia, of the boot, which is Italy. Melfi was a significant choice because it had been here that everything supposedly started with his Norman ancestors, over two centuries previously. If by any chance you were starting to get the impression that Frederick was a modest guy, all you had to do was remember that the laws set out here in Melfi on the 1st of September 1231, while being more commonly known as the Constitutions of Melfi, were also known as the Liber Augustali, referring to the great first non-emperor-emperor Augustus himself. What's more, the coins that Frederick had minted with his likeness were called the Augustale. With regard to the constitutions of Melfi, we won't go into all of the 253 clauses of the work, but we will look at a few more interesting aspects. As a premise, we can say that he took the existing Norman laws as a starting point and built on those. So, with regards to religious freedom, everyone was free to practice their own religion. However, if you were Muslim, you were not permitted to participate in public administration. Jews were allowed to practice money-lending and were actually granted the monopoly on silk and dye factories. But they were required to wear distinctive clothing and to wear beards to distinguish them. That lasts just for the men, obviously. Again, with regard to religion, if you were by any chance thinking of becoming a heretic or doing something different from the mainstream Catholicism, well, you'd have to think again. Because although he was very lenient to Muslims and Jews, Frederick II was merciless when it came to persecuting Christian heretics. There was a trace of a very, very early Green New Deal in the constitutions of Melfi with clauses against polluting waters with the remains of animal butchering, such as fish guts and stuff. The constitutions also attempted to introduce a single system of measurement into all of the empire and the obligation to have all those measurements marked. It was not the first time this had been attempted and it had failed in the past. It also failed this time around. There was also a clause regulating the medical profession. People wanting to be doctors couldn't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm a doctor now. But they were required under the constitutions of Melfi to have done a certain number of years of practice and to pass an official exam set by the imperial administration. The medical profession had seen some important developments at the school of Salerno in particular, thanks to the influence of the nearby Arabs with their advances in science and medicine that were quite far ahead of the West at the time. Speaking of schools, it had been only seven years before the constitutions of Melfi on the 5th of June 1224 that Frederick had founded the University of Naples, which bears his name to this very day. Incidentally, 
Just last weekend as we record, so the end of December 2019, we had a new Minister for University and Research in Italy, Gaetano Manfredi, who is the head of the Università Federico II di Napoli. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, though. At the time of its founding by the Holy Roman Emperor, the University of Naples was the only secular university in existence, and it offered room and board for those who could not afford it. From here, the teams of administrators needed to run a complex empire would come with Frederick's use of professionals to rule his domains. A prominent member of the university was one Peter of Ireland, which probably doesn't say much, but one of his more important pupils might, Thomas Aquinas. Aside from all the illuminated lawmaking it contained, the constitutions of Melfi were in most part an attempt to limit the power of the church and that of the magnates and vassals of the realm. Granted, Frederick from then on would call a yearly parliament of the great and powerful, but only really to tell them what they were supposed to do. It was almost inevitable, therefore, that the result of the application of the constitutions would be rebellion. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level Patreon supporters, that is, Andrew, Anthony, C. Lane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Reactionary Venetian, Roberta Rodney, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the super top group Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri, Sen, Paolo, and Lisa Kay. Remember that you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, and at the same URL you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, so go ahead and get in touch to say hello, to make a comment, positive or negative, hopefully positive, or just do whatever you want. Once again, thanks to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Now that I am emperor, I do solemnly swear that I will take up the Crusader's cross and will do my best to free the Holy Land. Very good, that's good to hear. Yes, when I have some time and when I feel like it. What's that? Nothing, just making a mental note. Sometime later. Well, hello there, Honorius, you old scoundrel. How are things? Very well, thank you. But what about my crusade? Ah, yes, I'll be right on it. It's the next thing on my list. I just need to sort some things out in the south a bit. You know how it is. But after that, I'll get right on it. Promise. Cross my heart. Hmm, very well. Some years later. Sire, grave news, the Pope has died. 
Oh no, what a bummer, man. I was just going to write to him and tell him I was leaving for the crusade. Oh no, well, I'm way too sad to leave now. Woe is me. Some more time later. Hey there, Gregory. Congratulations on becoming Pope. Great name, by the way. Yes, how about this crusade now? I am totally on it. On my way to Brindisi now. It's practically done. I mean, I might as well give you the keys to Jerusalem now and get it over with. Yes, well, we'll see. Some more, more time later. <coughs> oh no, man! <coughs> what a shame! I'm feeling sick. <coughs> So wish I could leave for the crusade. I'm just too weak. I have enough. You're excommunicated. What? No way. What did I do? That's not fair. God, I hate you. Sentira Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.